You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to a man who I am going to persist in describing as the professor. I don't remember who I got that off. I'm sure it uh, maybe it invented itself. Um, you'll hear that John Gordillo does not like to be referred to as the professor, but in the manner of nicknames the world over, I'm <laughs> determined to continue it because nicknames aren't all about uh, the person liking them. Uh, the reason people think of him like this, well, we, we go into detail on it. John is one of the most analytical, but not just not in a kind of purely cerebral way, although he's obviously very, very intelligent, but John seems to just have a, almost like a like a good theatre director's understanding of stand-up. We'll talk a little bit later on about, um, uh, about some of his experiences directing and working with, writing with other, other stand-ups. But he just has, he's like, he's a bit like a lecturer. Now, I don't know if you went to university. Um, certainly the place that I went to wasn't really a university. Uh, but there were a couple of people like John there who just seemed to know so much about a subject, to have such a breadth of experience, and also to be able to uh, communicate that information in a way that simultaneously inspired you and made you feel that you weren't an idiot for trying to think along those lines anyway. Um, so I'm very pleased to bring you uh, the first part of this. is is another another raging two-parter. There's just with some people you just cannot get it all in in one go. Um, so this is the first part of a two-parter with the absolutely unique John Gordillo. This is this is the official beginning, John. All this right. is this is question number one. I wanted to. <laughs> it's not even a question. It's. Um, here are, the, and I've never done this before. This it's an opportunity a, for you to expound. <laughs> yes, obviously. This is um, uh, something I've never done before. Mm. I found some notes that I made at one of your gigs. Some notes that I made for myself at one of your gigs. I don't know if you've ever done that, been in the habit of watching someone, and someone has a particular approach, and you think, oh, God, I've never really looked at it like that. And I sort of was like, you know, well, maybe you've never you've done not, that. No, well, I, I'm the sort of <laughs> knob that... Well, <laughs> cat fight in the background. I'm the sort of knob that uh, that does a podcast about comedy, so that's the sort of thing I do. These are my notes. So my act was so scintillating. That <laughs> you, that you... <laughs> no, no, no. I would have been watching it from the back of the room, and the fact I was I there. I must be is... alone with my thoughts now. Yeah, go on. <laughs> this is it. In inverted right. commas. Thinks with his dick. Does, oh, that, this yeah. that's a bit of yours, I believe. Yeah. yeah. 
And I said, does it think? What would happen? How does that make me feel? No, what would it actually be like? And then the note to myself is, leave the idea of jokes and just do the ideas, then trust yourself to make it funny. So mm. that was a note I wrote to future Stu. Right. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm watching John. That's what you're supposed to do. You lead the idea of that and you follow has, the idea. Has future Stu re- received it yet? Is yeah, that, oh, yeah. Okay, right, I think All so, right. yeah. So do you think that's a, a reasonable... That's an amazing... Uh, uh, encapsulation of something that uh, actually is yeah I'd not put it that way but that's exactly yeah. what I, that's exactly what I think I think of you as the guy that follows the ideas first and foremost mm. that's absolutely right because when it was interesting because when I did a f- uh, work a few years ago with Michael McIntyre who's really really hung up on the punchline and the joke mm-hmm. and I would say to him just just do more on that bit where you're caught in that situation because just you being trapped in that situation is funny mm-hmm. just the idea of it is funny and michael would be going no no no, i need a joke <laughs> yeah yeah i need to have a joke here and i'm saying the situation is funny just play that idea out i mean it's not excuse me it's actually not quite what you've identified me as doing but the but my emphasis is i'm much more interested in the condition of something rather than trying to just put a joke on everything absolutely Yes, I, I, the, the situation the, is funnier than the comedy a lot of the time for me. It's if that in the, the absolutely yes, the I, I think that's definitely part of it as well. But I think there's something about your like you very deliberately follow the idea. I was listening to yeah, yeah, uh, sure. Divide and Conquer, which yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. was great. I hadn't heard that before. And I'm really you. glad you sent me that uh, shonky, poorly recorded copy about, of a yeah, preview. Yeah, yeah. But it was it's great. bad video to go with. That I was as good. Well. Okay. <laughs> Um, and I also saw Cheap Shots at the Defenceless, right. and they are some of my favourite shows, okay. I think, because the way I was describing Cheap Shots to people when I was saying, you've got to go and see this mm. show, was it managed to actually say something about the subjects in a way that comedy often pretends to and then doesn't. Mm. So in that show, which you, in your words, what, is, what, what yeah, was that show that's about? exactly, but it, that's, for me, I, there has to be something bigger than just the joke. Because if you want to go and really laugh, then go and see Tim Vine because he's amazing. And you'll just laugh, 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 laugh. Or Ross Noble. Just watch an, an amazing improviser just do pure comedy. And it's all ideas, but there's no real connecting idea. The, 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 the connecting idea in a Ross Noble show is sort of a meta idea yes. about how we're all in this together and we're, and we're in this space. And, he, and it is a very particular celebration of the moment. And he does that with an intensity that just no one else does. I don't know how to do that. Or, or Michael McIntyre does another version of that. And in a way, I always think of people like that as being much purer comedians than me. Whereas what I like is I, I do like an idea. I do, I do like when it's bigger than just a joke. So for me, the story and the, the framing of it is as entertaining as the gag. And, and where possible, if the jokes can be digressions that come off the pushing of that idea. So what you've got is an emotional... Well, it's emotional first, but then intellectual drive that's pushing you through a set of ideas or a problem, whatever it is. And ideally, you have... I have to mask the fact that there are jokes coming. And it's pure expedience, because I've tried to be, years ago, that kind of joke-telling. I've tried to do jokes for joke's sake. And the audience just doesn't buy it from me. They, you know, they, they... They know that it's they, not what you it actually stink, care yeah, about. It stinks of insincerity. It's just me trying to be liked. And so, yeah, in, in the case of those two things, you know, it's part of the reason why, you know, it's like what you said a minute ago, 
I like the situation often more than the jokes. I find dramatic comedy, that's always been the stuff that's appealed to me more. Because for me, the jokes become a surprise then. You're not expecting jokes. You kind of go, where the, where the jokes are going to come from here? Yes. So I like all of that. I like, to me, the funniest thing is not being funny in a comedy show, is pulling it away. And in the case of that show that you mentioned, Cheap Shots, I think it actually, I th- you know, Reg Hunter said an interesting thing to me about, to me about that show. He said he, he really loved the show. He said, but there were times he thought when, he said it was admirable, but you often sacrificed laughs for clarity. And I think that's really astute because ultimately, and what's happened is that in later performances of that show where I've, you know, that show in a way was what made me a much more confident performer coming out of that. And the show got a lot funnier because you just relax and you're lighter. You have to be so light, whatever your idiom is, however you work, whether you're, even if you're an angry comic, you've got to be light with that anger. You've got to let people into it. You've got to show them that that's just a colour. It's okay. You don't have to be scared. If you're scared, you can't laugh. It's, it doesn't, you've got to at some level be reassured. Um, And so, since I've become a sort of, you know, in a way become a more confident performer after that show, because I realised, actually, in the early iterations of that show, I was really, you know, I mean, all the work in that Edinburgh was just trying to remember the ideas flow, get the sequence yes. right, so you've got an emotional progression and an intellectual progression, but when, you know, when you're thinking that much around it, as the, the comic spirit goes. Yes. And what's really fun and funny at the end of the day, no matter how you want to package it, is a man or a woman or a group of people coming on stage and just having fun or creating a sense of conviviality. And then it's okay from there if it goes serious. It doesn't matter. But if you're in your head trying to manage and marshal this, trying to corral these mouthy ideas that are complicated and, you know, then you're probably making too much heavy weather of it anyway. But But then that's like all writing. It's all distillation, isn't it? The more and more you do it, the simpler and simpler it gets and the more naturally and simply you learn to express yourself. So with that show, just can you describe for the listener what that show was about? Because uh, I, I know what I was, I know what I think it's about. But I, I would like to hear in your words. And we will, uh, we will briefly digress into the press release for that show, which was uh, hilarious. Okay. I've got it written down because there's some of it I want to talk to you about, but we'll get, we'll get to that. Okay, so the idea of Cheap Shots of the Defenceless is that it's... It, the primary drive of it is it looks at the language of faux intimacy that companies and corporations have with us where they're trying to form relationships and and pretend that they're not selling to us but the notion that they anthropomorphize themselves and make themselves out to be entities over whom in a lot of cases they sort of seem to imply we have a duty of care we must look after them they're friends they're buddies they and it's marketers and advertisers and companies trying to penetrate that part of our brain that and get reject to advertising. Yeah, they want to and get it gets under to it the and pretend that, that we that we reserve for friends and family yes. and all that kind of thing. And it's so that we'll feel socially obligated to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it, well, or that it'll touch off a sort of you know that sort of fuzziness, or you know, it it that it bypasses effectively. It bypasses the intellectual defence and just appeals to an emotion, which obviously is the primary discourse of stand-up comedy uh, and and films, which I also love. Sure. I think they have to work emotionally first before they can deal with ideas. But anyway, that's a separate point. Um, And the bigger message of that is that it's just a way of looking at the corporate assault. It's, in a phrase of Naomi Klein's, it's corporate rule by personal communication. 
and I stole the line and put it in the show because it's perfect. Yeah. She meant it in a slightly different context, but it's perfect. And she's absolutely right. Um, but on the other hand, the problem with that and in the very early performances of that show is that's quite dry. I mean, I, yes. I don't have the fire or the anger of a Mark Thomas. or And actually, when I play that, it's not very authentic. The crowd doesn't really buy it off of me. And I'm not sure... And you don't buy it. Sometimes you get genuinely pissed off about something or you, or you, or, or you, but you play your anger, you play it. Like there was a bit in that show where I just got very angry with the loose women for having Dion Warwick on. Yeah. And hopefully if you laughed at that, you're enjoying, you know, it's a bit... It's a, an unreasonable thing to be angry about. Absolutely. I'm taking yeah. it. And I did feel all of those things. Obviously they've, they've become amplified and exaggerated into the routine and a language has come that's much more sophisticated than what I felt when I watched the loose women show with Dion mm-hmm. Warwick and went, what sure. the fuck is going on? Um, but... Yeah, there's an element in the anger that makes it vulnerable or that makes it accessible or that you show your hand and you explain why you feel this way. And so, and for someone like me, for whatever reason, the audience just needs to be really clear. If I, I did an Edinburgh show about four or five years ago where um, it was just angry and, nobody, and, and it had a lot of rude, transgressive jokes in it. And some of the jokes were terrific, but the whole tone and the pitch of it you know, there was something unworked out in me at that time and I was trying to work stuff out. And I thought, it's a real mistake that I've often made in the past. And, I ha- and it happened years ago when I made a, a, a talk show for, for BBC Choice. And you can... I assumed that the audience understood what a talk show was. I assumed in the show I'm talking to you about now that the audience understood, you know, oh, he's, the show's a parody of male anger... Actually, no, you've got to be simple. You know, if it, the, the problem with stand-up comedy, the problem with comedy is that it's not subtextual. You've, you've got to really be clear about what you're saying or you've got to be really clear that you're being ironic. Yes. It's not like a movie, which is utterly subtextual. The real emotional power and drive flavors, is it? happening underneath. Yeah. So you feel it and you sense it yes. before... And, and, it, and it can take a minute to collate all of those different emotions. That's why I love films. Stand-up is more... I think of a, a straight-ahead, literal medium. That's not to say that it... You know, an act like Al Murray is pure subtext. It's all he's playing off of your understanding that sure. he doesn't mean what he's saying. And it's really dense. It's really clever, some of that stuff. But anyway. So what you, what you did in Cheap Shots, though, was you had, you had these two So yeah, we've run off. Excuse that's totally me. fine. That's <laughs> totally fine. I will, I will rugby tackle you but, to the ground when I need Excuse me. To. So my point is simply this. Sorry. So forgetting all of the editorialising about... So one thing is, yeah, my anger and all of my nonsense. One aspect of it, and the real drive of it, is an observational comedy drive, which is saying, isn't it weird all these companies are trying to be my friend and isn't it weird how they try and make me feel, right? And the other aspect of it that I thought was interesting is to compare that to what was happening in my own life where I have a relationship with a young girl who's my daughter in all but biology, but with whom... Um, I was having an emotionally constipated relationship. And and yet the emotions around it were genuine and intense, and yet they weren't able to be expressed. And so you've got this weird thing where these things are telling you how much they love you, and then the person that you actually love, and you kind of know secretly loves you back, can't can't express. And so that seemed to me to be... a, a really good contrast and the end, be, between something that was really personal and something that really wasn't. I remember watching that show and that, that connection between the two subjects 
isn't made clear throughout the show. Until it kind of comes end. together yeah. at the end. And I remember what I think what I thought was really masterful about it was going, this is, this is two half hours. I mean, it wasn't as simple as that, but it's like two half hours about funny, interesting things you feel passionate about. But how is this a show? Mm. And then at the end, when you showed the, the slides mm. of... That you know, hi John. It's been a while since we heard from you from your phone company. Together with, a, I think the one I remember was a post-it note on a dirty kitchen table in this girl's handwriting, saying, "Are you fucking kidding me?" <laughs> that she just left on your dirty table that you'd left. That was just such a narrative kind of crescendo for me, where I went. It was. Uh, Something that I think does this brilliantly is South Park, mm. where they go, this is, this is what the episode's about. And then halfway through, you realise what the episode's actually really? about. Yeah, and you yeah, go, yeah. oh, God, that's clever. You gave me all the yeah, information yeah, yeah, and you yeah. didn't let on yeah, until yeah. that time. So I think that show was... was... But to me, I really, I really like... I'm, I'm flattered by the description because the thing that I like about what you've said and I agree with as a general principle of, for me, the stories that I really love. And that's why I think of... You know, it's like the way you do jokes in a comedy set aren't necessarily the way you thread them in an Edinburgh show. Sure. And so, for me, the Edinburgh show is about the bigger thing, and that's much more fun because then you're in story territory. And that's what I like about stories. It's like you watch a film like Jaws, and Jaws is two things, and it does both things absolutely brilliantly. It's both a really effective monster movie, and it's also a bizarrely, like, really accurate and well-observed portrait of small-town anxiety and neurosis and politics and corruption and somebody who's, you know, caught between all of those mm. different choices. And it works at two levels. And, and, and for me, that's why, for example, Jaws is a, a great film, because it doesn't just do what all the modern blockbusters do, which is cursorily and in a soap opera way set up the menu for the shark. Yes, and, yes. And... <laughs> the menu for falsely, the shark. That's a lovely phrase. Falsely <laughs> amplify your emotions, or the or the earthquake, or, or the you know the yes, twenty twelve the world the menu. These are the people who are on the menu. Love exactly. them so that we can kill them. And so that you the levers. You kind of feel no. These are people that have a life outside of this story. And this, I mean, obviously, there's loads of great films work on that principle. That, but it actually takes the time to 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 detail those two things, and somehow that meeting is really uh, is really rewarding. So, so let's talk, let's just kind of focus in on... on Vertigo does it too, so it's like, whatever, let's... loads of films, I only like talking about films. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, we, I'm sure, aware whatever. that that's where your, your head's at at the moment, and we, yeah. we, we will get to all that stuff, but there's a, there's, I've, got a, I've got a big menu of things I need to of talk about first. So with regard to Cheap Shots at the Defenceless, which remains a wonderful title, uh, even though it has well, that... seemingly no link with the show, well, it was just like a, but... it was like a satire on what stand-up is. But exactly, and, that, and that's another thing that as I'm sure like, you've had loads of comics say to you, it's, and it's the classic cliche of having to come up with a show in March, yes, the title, of before of you've thought the thing through. So there's an element of buttering that phrase into the show yes, back yes. in order to, yeah, to make it make sense. It's so, a bit, bit tenuous. So when you, like, which bit came first in that show? I, I feel like we gigged together at Native Tongue in Epsom oh, wow. years ago. Yeah, yeah. We were both doing previews and you were doing some stuff about letters getting it emails. Was 10 or 11, absolutely, because I was going to go to Edinburgh that year with, with a, a show that would have had some of that stuff in it, yes. So that idea has really interested me and it still interests me uh, in its different forms. I'm really... It's one of the things I think, like for me, that's where stand-up and it really only works, as far as my understanding of it, when you anecdotalise. You can look at a big-picture thing, but unless you can come up with a specific 
kink in it, the, 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 the little thing that bothers you. You know, that's, I like to have the little thing and then slowly it unravels and unravels yes. and unravels and you go, fucking hell. Because um, that's, because obviously each little thing is a consequence of that big picture thing just manifesting itself in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, you've got to anecdotalise it. So yeah, at that point I was putting together, I had some of the, just the, the observational bits about what happens when somebody sends you a letter, an email, someone you've never met sends you an email that goes re-erectile dysfunction. In the, you go, I don't know who this person yeah. is. <laughs> I didn't send out an email yeah. to anyone, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, and there's a whole set of, in a way, well, whatever, every idea lends itself to its permutations, its parameters, but in a way, quite standard observational jokes that you can make about the absurdity or incongruity of that. Um, but then when you weave it together for the show, it hopefully has a bit, you know. So, so if you started with kind of like, I've got some stuff here about, about that kind of fake friendship, yeah. those fake emotions. Yeah. And also what's on your mind is your relationship with your daughter. Yeah. At what point do they, like, was there a moment when you went, hang on, these things are completely parallel? Or was it, did, was that the kernel of the idea at the very beginning of the process well i mean i've I had a free i've had a free floating beef with both things so but but when it's yeah it's when it's whatever the point is you realize oh these are both connected i'm constipated in an area i should be free and all of this unwanted love is coming to me and and it's really not appropriate so what i don't know exactly but i would have pursued both of those strands so as, were you... as different strands in my stand-up. I wouldn't have connected gotcha. them in my so, stand-up. Uh, and and if I, been... I don't think I've ever connected them. In my... I, might, I might have connect, done a link yes. to let me through into another yes. passage. So you've been I wouldn't working have really worked on that through. several preoccupations, like long-term yeah. beefs, and then realising, oh, of these seven recurrent yeah. themes that I'm talking about, these two seem linked together. Yeah, but... But my experience of putting an Edinburgh show together, not just for myself, but for other people, is that there's an element of expedience in it as well. What do you mean by expedience? You go, you try to link together the funniest stuff and you gotcha. try to see how that works. And then when you've tried to put the funniest stuff together, you realize, oh, some of this really doesn't fit, then you've got to drop some funny stuff and either generate, you know, whatever, generate new stuff or whatever. But, so yes, so there is an element of, you're, you're doing two things, but that's just crafts, Craftsmanship, craftspersonship. Are we allowed mm-hmm. to say craftsman still? Yes. Yeah. Are we allowed to say craftsman still? <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> we what mean, are we allowing ourselves to say that? Well, craftsman I, just sounds weird, doesn't it? Uh, just to say well, that. craftsperson Craft, is craftsman. sort of too much of a mouthful, but I get, you know, I think we're both on the same page intellectually with why that's a good. Are, are we allowed to say that still? It's all right. <laughs> Can we call them coloured? Um, it's. Uh, yeah, but you know, but it's that thing where you don't really know why you're doing it half the time, do you? You kind of go, "That works. I'll put that bit together. Oh, that feels good. Oh, I'm, hang on." So, well, that's interesting. So it's a bit of both, isn't it? You're sort of shrinking Let's... to fit, but you're also trying to serve a bigger idea and try to make it work as a story. So this is John. Now, listen, we're going to get straight back to this. Uh, we, we've got. Uh, I mean, we're only. What are we now? We're a quarter of the way through uh, a two-parter here. So uh, let me just very quickly say thank you for your donations. Uh, you can donate at PayPal, please. No, you can't. I mean, you can donate via PayPal. You can donate at comedianscomedian.com. But please, please, please don't tick the box that says weekly donation or monthly donation or regular donation, whatever it is. It doesn't work. We don't know why it doesn't work. Uh, and a listener has very kindly been in touch to say they've had two long phone calls to PayPal support 
trying to work out why it doesn't work. And we still don't know why that is, but please don't tick that box. Um, I will. I think I've made this promise in the past, but I, by the end of this year, I will give you some sort of ability to regularly donate. You can do that at Patreon um, if you get a Patreon account, which I know not everyone wants to, to subscribe to another fiddly internet account. But for those of you who are on Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, you can uh, donate at Patreon.com slash ComComPod. You almost heard me say forward slash or backslash. I'm not sure. Let's just go with the slash. Um, so Patreon.com slash ComComPod, and that makes a regular donation. We will come up with a better, more efficient way of doing that. Not better, different to lovely Patreon, um, but for people that don't have those accounts. That is that. And really, it's these. I'm all about the Soho shows. Now, listen, one guest of the four Soho theatre shows that we're doing, Live Comedians Comedian Podcast, on the first Tuesday of each month, starting in but 10 days from now, um, starting on the 7th of April. Uh, I've got one guest booked and three phenomenally exciting irons in the fire. The problem is the guest that I've got booked is for the second one. Uh, she, I'm going to give you that much. It's a she. She, for the second one, is just an incredible comic, incredible performer and creator and auteur. And uh, I, I'm not going to tell you who she is because I don't yet know for absolutely confirmed certain who the first guest is going to be. And it would seem weird to announce the second without the first. So all I can tell you is that the person we're talking to uh, for the first Soho show uh, on the 7th of April um, is utterly unique as a, as a comedian, has an incredible story to tell, has made some unbelievable, has taken some unbelievable risks um, and is just oh, someone. If we can get this person, this will kick off the run in such a spectacular fashion. If we can't get the person that we're talking to now, of course, I will get someone completely brilliant. So please, please come and see that. I really want these Soho theatre shows to be a success. Um, and I really want to do more and more and more of them. And uh, I just was not prepared for how difficult and fiddly it is to book the calibre of acts that I want to book. Um, when you just, you know, even if you go to them directly, they say, yeah, absolutely. Um, but then you sort of get passed on to management and what have you. So, uh, and, and I, I should also at this opportunity like to apologise to anyone that's tried to book me in the past, um, who I've done a similarly breezy thing to and said, oh yeah, absolutely, just, just get in touch. And then of course things get confusing and difficult because everyone's up to several different things at once and it's difficult to commit. So now the boot is squarely on the other foot and I'm uh, experiencing just how confusing that process can be. But... One definite booking of someone tremendous. Three very, very exciting irons in the fire. And so please go to SohoTheatre.com and you can search. We're under T for The Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Um, but uh, Or you can put my name into that or Google uh, Goldsmith Soho Theatre. I'm sure that'll chuck it up as well. And get yourself tickets for that. Um, it would be so lovely to see you there. It would be so good to really fill that lovely little downstairs. We're in the downstairs bar room in the Soho, if you know it. Um, and I'd be thrilled to do that. So please come along, get your tickets. Once you've got your tickets, tell other people to get tickets, bring great wadges of people along. And if we can make it as exciting as Edinburgh was last year, when I just began every show by going, what, why are you here? Where have you all come from? Then, uh, w then that would make me really, really happy indeed. So if you're thinking of donating, why not buy a ticket instead and actually use it? Don't just buy a ticket and then leave me an empty seat. That would be 
most embarrassing. That's all the pleading. That was a bit pleady, wasn't it? I listened back to some uh, some podcasts from a few years ago, and I think on the first Edinburgh run, you can hear my spirit gradually breaking throughout August. Um, my spirit is by no means broken. I'm feeling very happy and confident in these shows, but I would be so thrilled if we could show Soho that this is the sort of thing that they should absolutely take on and we should do more of. So thank you very much for listening. Let's get back to John Gordillo. You can tweet me at ComComPod, email me info at comedianscomedian.com if you need any other information or would like to suggest other guests. But um, we'll get straight back to this now because, as you can hear, this conversation is a blinder. Let's get back to John Gordillo. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> let's talk about that thing that the the dynamic for you between feeling that something's a good idea getting a feeling in the room or you know a a kind of a a warm response from an audience the the marriage between that and and your kind of theoretical your cerebral uh you're following the ideas aspect of it because do you find is that sometimes that, do the gears ever grind that you're thinking, I'm trying to follow the idea here, but actually the audience yeah. are telling me they want to hear about something yeah, else that yeah, wasn't yeah. the idea? Because oh, often when you do that following the idea thing, it's like a bit I've got at the moment. I've been, again, because I'm so on and off, like I've been off, I was off gigging for just about, in fact, the last time I saw you in May last mm. year, and mm. I stopped and I came back at the end of January. So in a way I'm still doing, I'm doing stuff now that I was doing then that was yeah. new then, but hasn't, you know. But like I've got a bit, at the moment that I really enjoy doing, which is about how Facebook, it's in a similar vein, but it's a different point but it, to what we're talking about, but how Facebook is constantly asking you to star rate everything. Yes. It comes up to you and says, have you been to this place? And you go, yes. And then it says, how many stars do you give it? But then it's, it asks you to star rate things like the Grand Canyon, which are <laughs> just beyond, you know, they shouldn't, the Grand Canyon shouldn't be subject to that, Yes. To that way of looking at it. Yes. It's like, no, it's bigger than that. It's not, and the only reason they're doing it is to obviously target market you with similar things if you like the Great Canyon, so they'll sell you Monument Valley or Death Valley or whatever. So, so there's a funny bit just about going through reviews on TripAdvisor and, and how people are really confusing the majesty of an experience with their narrow comfort inside it. Yes. So they're giving the Grand Canyon two stars because, because their the children got big. Right. Exactly. Yeah, 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 I got or, you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So... And it's fun. And, and I'm not really in a... If I was in a proper phase of stand-up writing right now, I would have sorted this out. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not. I'm doing something else. Um, 
but that leads me on to want to look at bigger picture implications of what I'm talking about, the, the, everything reduced to consumability, the fact that it's clearly a sign that we have too much, that the fact that, you know, clearly people in the third world aren't logging onto the Red Cross website in a famine queue, you know, complaining about the lack of service, etc., etc. Now, all of those, there's, there's a lot of very funny ideas in that, but I haven't figured out quite how to personalise it. In fact, the, when I've ventured into that, it's still a bit too theoretical, and it's still a bit weighty in the way that I just described it. So mm, it's too big mm. picture, and actually not all of it's quite original. We know that we've got too much. Mm-hmm. We've got to find a better way of saying that, other than we've got too much. Um, but there's a case where just pursuing theme... Now, I know the ideas. I've got jokes around where I want it to go. But I'm going to have to work on anecdotalizing that, making that personal and making that fun. Because, uh, because you can feel the audience, when I go to that bit, kind of go, yeah, yeah, but it's not as funny as what you just did. And I also think at some level they're going, yeah, we kind of get that. Mm-hmm. So how do, you surprise, you know, how do you surprise the audience? And it's because I haven't because I'm taking a rather lackadaisical approach to that little bit at the moment, because I'm not, you know, going to be roughing it out on stage. Yeah, still. exactly. Yeah. And I know that that's an area that needs a bit of thought and, and that idea just needs to be expressed. It's not, an, it's not a, the easiest of ideas to express. And it's also one of those, those ideas that actually to express, it does take the audience into a more thoughtful place and isn't just anecdotal. So how to do that and keep that, you know, keep that fire alive and keep it funny and light and, um, so there's a case of, in its first draft form, me writing for theme is weighing it down is a bit heavy. And yeah. actually, it just needs to be stand-up. That's all I'm saying. It just needs to be anecdotal and silly okay. and light. So is there, just describe to me that part of the process where you're sitting at your laptop working on draft one. And describe to me the difference between draft one and draft two. Because a lot of people, sometimes I, I've guessed... Um, for an image, or for, or for stand-up, or, or what? For anything. What, for well, any- it's the same thing. It's the script I'm working on at the moment. We um, will get to the exactly script you're working the on at the moment. <laughs> it's exactly the same process, though. The first draft is broadly chucking together everything that works. So you kind of go, well, at least I've got an hour of funny things. At least, at least, at, and that, and I can roughly hold that together. The, uh, to me, the first draft is kind of going because. Because there's an extent to which the theme is guiding the stand-up writing. If yes. I find a bit that kind of goes, oh, that's about something interesting, I'll try and look for more examples of that, that broaden it and deepen it. Um, so, yes. So, um, there, yeah, hold on. I'm just going to put yeah, press so pause just, on that for the moment because yeah. we're already doing editing a, a, an, an existing hour show. The, oh, when you say putting the... That's no, my fault. I asked the wrong question. When you say putting all the stuff together that works, let's go right back to how you get the stuff that works. Like when you go on stage with a new oh, bit, anything, is that any, something tumbling any, out of your mouth? Yeah, or no, something no, no, any, anything. Uh, no, I'll have thought about what I want to talk about, and I'll have thought about what the yeah what the subject is or what the broadly the comic at- attack is, and I'll have written as many jokes as possible, as okay. possible. Um, and then I'll go on stage and I'll wing it. Let's zero in on that, on yeah. the writing jokes about those things, the yeah. pre-winging it stage, if you like, of, yeah. of like, okay, I've got a theme, cats, whatever, whatever the thing is. Well, a theme, I, 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 this cats. is where I'm getting slightly snagged. When you say theme... Subject I'm not thinking, matter. Yeah, a subject, a topic. A, a topic. A, something that I think I've got a joke on. Yes. Yeah. So, so talk to me about that part of it. You've got a, a thing that you think you've got a joke on. Yeah. And you're going to try and think of as many jokes as possible about that thing. Yeah, I'm constantly looking to try and expand. And broaden and deepen it. If I've got a joke, then I'll go, 
can I get another joke out of on that subject? I yes. mean, how many can I get? And then I'll do, I think you said it earlier, then I will look at it from every possible angle. We'll think about what happened if, you know, I mean, it depends what I'm learning, whether my emotional reaction to the subject merits it. Because if I haven't got a genuine connection to the thing, if I don't understand what it's really touching off on me, then I'm just a guy who's getting worked up about nothing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's a really important part of, I think, of your story as a comedian. It's, yeah, because as we all know, it's easy to amp up the anger on something. But if it doesn't feel authentic, then it's, it's weird because you, in stand-up, you have to... You have to stand out. You know, Reg calls it blues without the music. There is a culture of complaint in stand-up. You're looking for the problem. It's one of the reasons why stand-up broadly attacks power because it's disenfranchised from power. It's not of power. Um, and to some extent, that's what happens in the writing of all all routines. I don't know most routines. I don't know. Um, you try and set up what the power of a thing is over you, why it's a problem. And if that connection is authentic and is specific and is yours, um, then that's half of the battle won. So for me, it's important. So I wouldn't ever think of theme or big picture ideas. I mean, I might be guided by the kind of... I know if I like something, or if I go, well, that's interesting, I'll know at some level, oh, yes, that touches off something that I'm really interested in. That's in the territory. But in terms of knowing what the specific journey through the bit is going to be, I don't know. Uh, Whatever's funny, whatever works. Because getting the funnies out first and getting used to saying the funny bits, then it becomes much easier to change what you're saying inside it. Because, as you know, there's a... There's a dozen ways of setting up every joke. It can, you know, there's a, there's a dozen things it can mean. That idea is, I think, that's a fascinating articulation of that idea. That you have, that you have to establish with them what power over you a particular a particular thing has. Yes. If you're talking about, like, I, I'm thinking at the moment about. And I'm really, I'm really enjoying this because I feel like, you know, I was, I was saying before we started recording, I was sort of saying, I feel like it's all coming together at the moment. I'm feeling like a powerful joke <laughs> yeah, guy, you right. know. Um, it's, I'm really enjoying going, yeah, I've been, I've been doing that. I've been doing that. And I, yeah, there's an yeah, example yeah, yeah, of where yeah. I haven't been doing that recently. I've got a joke about, it's a very new joke, I've done it like twice, about um, how annoying it would be to be in the brass section of a jazz band when the singer cues you in, when the singer goes, horns! And that if, if I was the guy, I'd be like, I know when my bit is. I'm a professional yeah. musician. I've got the music in front of you. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been waiting for this moment. I, I've been learning to play an instrument for right. years. You just smoke. Exactly. <laughs> That's sort of the joke. Now, it's kind of, it's a funny idea, but I tell you what, I haven't done is I haven't established the power over me Absolutely. that that has. Absolutely. And it doesn't have an authentic connection Absolutely. to me or my experience. Because because so it remains a silly joke. Absolutely. Because it's a joke, because until you... Okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a shout and I'll come back. <laughs> uh, yeah, until you identify what that is, it's just... It's just, it's just a, a silly joke. joke. Yeah, yeah, it's a joke. And I'm, I'm pleased that I've kind of clocked that and I'm going, yes, this, I'm, because, agreeing with, I'm agreeing with the professor. This is no, great. Fucking professor. <laughs> Someone call me the professor, yes. I'm, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> I've heard that about you as well. We'll get on to that. Um, yeah, um... Yeah, very much. It's that other thing where, obviously, what all comedians do is they, and 
you, you, you bring the audience to the thing that you find funny. There are very few, as we know, inherently funny things that are universally funny if they just happen. It's normally a thing that's then allied with the voice of the teller. And the voice of the teller is the, is the crucial thing, the funny how. Um, and yes, it's, um, it's about leading the audience specifically to the thing that you find funny or that bothers you. And it's something that... Um, I don't know if I fully agree with this, but I understand what he means, that Seinfeld said years ago, um, you know, the kind of comedy he said that makes me laugh. Yes, I understand that there are real big problems in the world and George Carlin is amazing and all the rest of it. But he said the thing that really makes me laugh is the guy who gets wound up about the thing that he shouldn't get wound up about. He brings you to the point where he's getting wound up about the stitching in this wallet and yes. how it messes with his life. Yes. And he says, and that I find really funny because I never would have thought to find, to, to, to find that a problem. Of course, something else happens when when someone gets wound up about the stitching in a wallet, depending on how they get wound up, at that point there's a massive... If you're laughing, at some level, you're laughing at them, but you're also there's a massive identification of going course. on at the meta level because you're understanding the role that those things play. You don't have to have a badly stitched wallet to laugh at that. You have to understand the nature of that frustration. Things aren't as I want them to be. Exactly. And they never can be 100%, exactly. and we all feel that and we all suffer. And, and how you then navigate that within your bit about your wallet, you know, that's... Yeah, that's... that's that be, it, it becomes an essay on that, on the escape strategies and the frustrations or the resentments that we take out over these non-things. And, you know, it's like... And at some level, it's healing because it's, 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 it's a lovely, warm essay in our futility and the, and the things that we get wound up about that we shouldn't. I don't know that that necessarily is... <laughs> I'm not sure that's necessarily how it's taken, but that, to me, is what it is. It's, it's a real... You know, it's good. Comedy's brilliant for that, isn't it? Just making us laugh at our true stupidity. <laughs> Loving the phrase, a warm essay in our futility. Yes. That is a wonderful sentence. But it does bring people together. It is, I mean, this is the problem. This is both what's amazing about comedy and what's also a problem with it. Because what saner thing to do in the face of our futile existence and the inevitable death and all the rest of it, just the meaninglessness of it, meaninglessness of it, than laugh. That makes total sense. Um, but it's the passivity that's implied also in the laughter. There has to be a step after the laughter, because otherwise you'll just laugh at stuff and not engage with it, and then horrible things will be done to you in the name of making you laugh. <laughs> Can I explain what you mean? You've lost me there slightly. I, 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 just, mean, I just mean, like, if you're laughing about something, you're not necessarily... There's a phrase that... Excuse me, I, 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 this is someone else's phrase, that Sarah Pascoe said in an interview, and I, I, I saw it recently, and I thought she distilled it. She said, if you're laughing at something, you're not angry about it. Mm. And, and that's a problem uh, if you want to affect any change. Mm. And it's also her view that comedy doesn't instigate change, it reflects change. And... I don't know whether that's true, but I think it's more true than I'd like it to be. Mm. And it raises the question for me about what is the point? I mean, I mean, it's, then you say, what is the point? And as I was saying to you before we turned on, the two most um, really resonant and brilliant and perfect comedy experiences I had last year were watching people who really are away from my 
from all these things I'm talking about, James Acaster and Ross Noble, I thought mm. in different ways, their full shows, I thought were just amazing, pure comedians, just being funny for the joy of it and the pure laugh of it. And it was amazing. You just came out and went, well, you know, why do I get myself all wrapped up in knots about these ideas and all the rest of it? When something else happens, when somebody's being incredibly funny, you're still laughing at all of those things, but it's being done in a in an artistic, metaphoric way. It's being done yes. one level removed from reality. Yes. But at that point, you can decide how you want to engage with it. You can either go, ha, ha, that was nice, and switch off and go home, I guess. Yes. Or you can choose to be energised by that. Well, let's talk about your who you are as a comic, and let's talk about your emotional connection to your material. Because I know that we look at comics that we love who are nothing like us and go, mm. oh, God, that's so wonderful. Mm. When you do the comedy that you do, do you feel like you're doing it because it's the only type of comedy that you can do? It's Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's the only kind of comedy that I, yeah, that I can do authentically. For whatever reason, if I'm not speaking with apparent authenticity and actually seriousness about my life, mm. if I'm not, that's for whatever reason. If, I, if the audience doesn't, I mean, I, this is the same with everyone, though. Yeah, it's the same with everyone. What I'm just identifying is my particular tone. But actually, yeah, the audience has to believe that I seriously care about what I'm talking about. And they have to believe that I'm not trying to be funny. And who do you think they see in you when you're on stage? Because the reason I ask the is... The thing that... Yeah, God, I don't know. Yeah. When we, uh, we talked around this table some years ago, um, and we had a little bit of a kind of, you know, writing jokes and chatting about ideas kind yes. of session... Um, and I remember you said to me something that really stayed with me, which is that when I get on stage, there is this question in the audience's mind as to why I'm there. Why is this... Do you this mean you personally me, or Me anybody? personally, me specifically. You <laughs> I'm, said, I'm sorry I said that. No, 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 I, I completely get where you're coming from. <laughs> what, because what I, seem, I seem like a that nice, happy hurt, guy. That sounds hurtful. Man. What reason has this guy got to be here? Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and you were suggesting that that's a thing I needed to solve for myself. Or, or at least appreciate that they're wondering that. But like, there is a tradition. There is ground, a tradition, you know? obviously, of really happy, sunny, warm guys and women doing comedy. So, uh, but yes, in your particular case, it's also partly because you know I knew stuff about you and stuff that we've spoken about, and you talked about. You know, in your case, you know, there's something. It's that thing about us that we're not in control of that. You know, it's what you said earlier that slightly wound me up, that some people think I'm the professor. Yeah. Because, but it's not really. It's because of what I look like and have these glasses. And, no, it isn't. And sometimes it's, <laughs> and, and it's how I express myself. It's certainly... Uh, well, that's, that's... It's not what you... It's yeah, it is, I'm a professor. It is partly what you look like. <laughs> no. and, and you... you. I think it's what consciously... I connote to people. Yeah, well, it's partly what you connote. It's partly what you connote physically through the way you dress and you've got glasses and you've got sort of hair and you don't make a concession to... <laughs> tidying yourself up you don't turn up in a tux you turn yeah, up in a jumper or whatever you yeah. do that's absolutely true and you con but it's not just that it's also because your stand-up is is not joke 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 mm. it's big concept let's swim around in this and find out what's going on it and that's as true whether you're doing a gala on tv as when you're doing a 
You know, it's like when you when we were in New Zealand together and yeah. you were on the gala, you didn't sharpen up and do a five minute joke filled no. gala set. You went on and kind of overran just by rambled. double your time and and <laughs> rambled and swam around in your ideas. That's why people think you're the professor. And obviously, there's that which we'll get onto shortly is the, the the question of you know your involvement in other people's work and the fact that you're very articulate about and you're very able, very capable in sort of helping other people make what they want to make, which is the, the job of a good director. But the, what I'm asking is, what do you think they see in you? Do you think an audience... The audience. Like, what, like in, the, in the same way that you, you would level that, that question for me, the closest what do they can, see the when you The closest I can get to that is just from direct experience. I know that when I did that Edinburgh show about a few years ago that I was talking to you about, it was called Fuckonomics, and I swore a lot, and it was about um, uh, all sorts of frustrating sexual and emotional things. Um... I listened, and it was a very mixed run. And I couldn't quite figure out in the middle of it what was wrong, because it had played really well in previews at a comedy club with a looser-shouldered crowd and all the rest of it, and it hit that room <laughs> in the Looser-shouldered Do you know what crowd. I mean? But they, but they also understand that you're taking the piss a bit more. Mm. And, that, and some of that leaves the room when you're in Edinburgh, this, yes. this sort of celebration of comedy. Yes. Um, but nevertheless, that, that, that's, that's like blaming the festival. And actually... You can't blame the festival because I looked back a few months afterwards at the tapes to kind of go, why was why was the first half of that show struggling in that room as much as it was? And I just listened to it. I'd not thought about it for a couple of months, and, and I found it hard to watch and listen to. And I went, oh no, no, hang on, I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure. Hey, I I've, I've got loose shoulders. Why aren't I laughing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I'm not sure. Like I really, I'm not sure that had I not been me and I'd have sat in that room watching that guy do that stuff I'm, I'm not sure I would have connected to it because because he seems to imply a more thoughtful and a more considered approach and actually I feel more comfortable as a listener feeling oh John's done some thinking about this so he sounds like he's reasonable okay now he can be unreasonable because because but he hasn't quite told the story of himself those happen to be his parameters and I think it was very interesting because I'd, I'd done that back... That had back to show the previous year where I'd done a show that everybody had liked about my father. And, and in that show, um, I was able to occupy a much more uh, comfortable space as a character. My dad was the extreme one. I was able to be the sort of slightly fussy, hang on, normalising one who tries to speak sanity... And so it played up against... And, and you're very humble in that show as well. If that's Divide and Conquer, that's yeah, yeah, the same yeah, show yeah, I just yeah, heard. Yeah, yeah. That you're very humble in it, and every time you sort of make... And I know I just heard a preview, but I would imagine it's a sort of a, yeah, yeah. An, uh, an element of the performance of that show, is you go... You, you would always say things like, um, and I, because I'm a useless, weak people yeah, pleaser, I wouldn't do you, know, yeah, you position I, yourself like I'm that. not sure that I would do that now. I, but certainly, yes, I was... Yes, because dramatically, the point of that show was to show the contrast. And then later in the show was to show some similarity. But yeah, absolutely. The point of that show was, this is a slight defence because at that time that was my shtick anyway. For years I've been too neurotic as a performer and too, too self-deprecatory to the point, you know, often over the years where I've just made audiences uncomfortable. It's just too much when you see a performer just beat themselves up. It's, it's just, it's not fun. Um, so there were, it's, that's not to say that at that time that wasn't part of my shtick by default, because of neurosis. But that, in that particular case, was a, was a decision dramatically to show what the differences were between the father and the son. Um, 
So I did that show where effectively I was looking at a problem that was outside of me. My dad and fundamentalism was expressed in my dad. Yes. That was, that was the, the big connection. And then the next year I did a show where I was the problem, where it explored the things about me that were antisocial, that were just kind of growly and snarly, um, or not worked out. And then by the end of that show... I've worked out what the problem is and I actually start saying what I actually think and it became much more comfortable for the audience. The laughs really picked up in the second half of that show. It was proper funny. But they were so uncomfortable in the first half of that show. And it's really fundamental. You've got, you know, it goes back to the most basic rule of performing stand-up. Introduce yourself, be nice, say hello, you know, or if you're not going to be nice, be big about not being nice. Just perform being a cunt if you're going to be a cunt, but do it big and let the audience know you're having fun doing it. And, you know, just... But be aware that you're in a room full of strangers and say hello to the people and acknowledge that this is a genuine human occasion. And so... And, you know, that problem with that show is that I I was coming in already with my theories and with the... the, You know, I was already playing the part of the unhappy guy who was in the shit relationship who was analogising it to economics. And all of that may have been at one level quite interesting, but at a just basic gut emotional level... I found it hard to relate watching the tape and I made the show. Mm. So I felt that, you know, you've, for whatever reason, and it's also just much more comfortable when you're a performer just to go on stage and be naturally yourself. Obviously mm. you find material that can feed that, but, but you know, just, just a wave. It's, Everything's fine. It, We're it, here. Now I'm sure now it's not everyone has to do that. Of course, if you're Stuart Lee or something like that, you have such a, a, a really well-defined persona and the audience is sort of bought into the joke already. And, you know, you can go out and play from the word go, but Stuart's not, he's not an unpleasant person on stage. No, he's very, sure. you know, he's appropriately deferential and polite to the audience. And, you know, it's just basic, basic, basic stuff. But again, it's me running away kind of going, oh, the audience gets that. Don't have to do that. No, you do, you do. You have to introduce yourself every time when you work. And that's appropriate and it's correct. You must not assume that anybody gets anything about you. I, I forget who first drew this analogy. Someone on the podcast many episodes ago, they said you need to be, to, to kind of make it, to become successful as a stand-up, the audience need to recognise your silhouette. <laughs> I, I'm sorry I can't attribute that, but uh, regular listeners to the show will, will know who I mean and uh, hopefully tweet it at me. Um, but... When you and I, I take that to mean not just in terms of if you want to be famous, you've got to have funny hair. Although some people do work on that basis, it would seem. But also that you, they need to get you. Mm-hmm. Do you think they get you? Do they? they, they no. Do you think they can get you in a? Kerry Marks said a really good thing to me a few years ago, and he said, the, and Dan Atkinson has a similar version of that. And Kerry basically said they've just got to be able to describe you in a sentence or two sentences. He right. says the problem with you and me, Gordillo, is that it takes about four sentences to describe what we do. Mm. Um, and Dan talks about um, how you're essentially 2D. You know, you're, you're, that's the fun of it, isn't it, when you're watching like a really pure comedian. I remember always years ago when I was in a double act and watching Jack D at the comedy store and just remembering, I mean, you. It doesn't matter. You just any any really defined persona. They've made you laugh about something, and they switch subjects, and you're laughing as soon as they're on the new subject because you know you can't wait. For you them got, to yeah, be you anticipate. As, exactly. You can't wait for them to be themselves about exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, and I can get that effect, but you have to have sat with me for a good twenty minutes, or and, and have to be on a run. And, you know, but 
but again, but my attitudes aren't always as simple as that to define. Yes. You know, and, and you're not prepared to compromise I'm, in terms of authenticity. I don't know how to. It's not, I mean, it's not, I mean, I just think if I wrote the kind of set that would get me on live at the Apollo, I think it would be like lacklustre. I just don't think it would be delivered with just whatever that 2% thing is that just makes it really individual and, and, and your own, which is not to say that something I do couldn't be on that show, but it, but to to me to try and write into that, given for me the amount of work I've got to do in, in just being good, in figuring out just how to be good, to me that seems like a waste of time. And luckily I've got my life sorted just about that. I don't need to do that. I don't need to... to so I can figure out you know how to be good <laughs> i was just wondering whether whether with the microphone is powerful enough to pick up that shrug <laughs> it's a terrific shrug <laughs> none of us know what we're doing though do we we're just we're just we're just trying to be funny in the best way we know how whatever that thing was that bill hicks said you know you you it's you have your usp you've just got to be yourself that's your usp you've got to figure that out it's not about thinking about the market for that or whatever. There's probably never going to be a market for me that's substantial. But there's enough. Just allows me to keep learning and improving. Um, and I'm quite capable of enjoying my own work if I listen to it back or if I see it back. It just doesn't happen very often. Because I think there's, there's a lot of stray elements that, you know, for whatever reason, it takes a while in me to, to be able to, in, to, to figure that out. But I don't know. You get older and you get more confident, don't you? I feel more confident. I think, you know, I'm, something happened about two years ago. I'm not sure what it was, but it was it was good. Yeah, I yeah. don't feel. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as bothered about whether it goes well or not. And so, it, so it's beginning to be a creative experience on stage. It's beginning to be genuinely playful and relaxed. And I'm starting to be able to get. I'm starting to. The default is I don't in my head go. Oh, I better tighten up and do a, this kind of set. Yes. You know, I kind of go, no, no. You're giving if, yourself yeah, license no, if to I, take your time. and I'm going, you. no, no, yeah, exactly. If I just really take my time with this and really just think about how I'm going to plot this together, I can actually do what I want at any gig. I've just got to make sure that the journey through it is really accessible and is really clear to people. And uh, and that isn't a compromise for me because actually that's who I am. I am that kind of person. It's just, just be nice and normal and just be a nice person. It's not hard to be a nice person <laughs> and explain yourself. And if they don't laugh, have fun with that. Trust that you can improvise or play around mm. or find something else. So I would like, very briefly, there's loads and loads of I would like you to edit about to half of about. what I've just said. It's not happening, mate. We're all staying in. Um, <laughs> before we move on, there's a couple of other things I want to, to just get in, in stand-up. Now, you, I, something I'm very aware of, when someone has been going... How long have you been going for? I always, I always stumble on that answer because I've taken so many... Bl- blocks of time off i've been going as a solo stand-up i started 20 years ago i've done about 12 years on during i would imagine within that time you have for various pr interviews and promos and stuff told people the story of how you started doing stand-up but if you could like what how did you bring yourself to stand-up what were you like as a as a young man were you funny were you a funny kid in your class i was funny was was it funny got the hook in your mouth i was a funny kid i was a performing kid I did lots of school plays and things like that. I was I was more into acting and stuff. I'm not into that anymore. But I was definitely one of those kids. Um, it was a bit of an escape for me. It was definitely, you know, I, uh, mum died when I was three. I've no idea how that affected me, but it clearly must have affected me. Um, and certainly, um, I had a smart mouth on me and was a goof 
in uh, in school and but I was and I really loved the formative I mean I really loved sketch shows and things like that that were on television and the young ones and things like that but um the Richard Pryor concert film which I think I must have been about 16 when or 15 when I saw it or something like that uh was really defining that was oh my goodness that was just so incredibly funny and only later you then think about well what was that actually mm. what was really going on there um so I was really loved him and I loved Steve Martin as well. I really understood, I got that American and I got Lenny Bruce quite early as well. Not all of it, but uh, so I really liked that. But my own, uh, but I was much more interested in the dynamic in the relationship. Uh, I was going to uh, say, were you similarly analytical at the time? No, 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 no. I mean, if I was, it was just, it was just nerves or, 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 just rationalization or just whatever just not dealing with life you know yeah definitely been a tendency i mean this i suppose there still is i just don't think it impairs my work whereas i think it used to impair my work too much thought too much consideration of the consequences (laughs) too much consideration of how i'm coming across or what the audience (laughs) thinks of me in whatever form i'm in um you know and you know these masking these really suck these really fundamental questions which is do i fit in do i belong where is my community? Do I have acceptance? Am I any good? You know, and then all of those other critical voices that happen and say, blah, 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 all of that stuff that loads of people have. And I think that that really dominated... I used to... A, a good symbol for... I always remember my first girlfriend when I was 18, and I thought, I was thinking to myself, if I can't articulate five reasons I'm in love with her, I can't be in love with her. There was an inability in my brain to understand that, that things, there are, you know, it's not about a checklist. We're not so different, you and I. <laughs> I mean, oh my God. Right. I, yeah, absolutely. And, but that's, that's a pure defence. That's, that's a pure inability to deal with something else or just to let something be. Yes. And for years... And, and, and well into the point where I was doing my own solo stand-up, you know, what's good about me when I'm a director and when I'm crafting a routine is I'm a pedantic thinker. I'm a real pedant and I'll hold something and, you know, the detail's got to be absolutely right and all the rest of it. But that's only recently started to work for me. I was the rest s- of it, you just think yourself out of existence. And the core thing, yes. especially with comedy, is you've got to just go... You got to feel funny. You just got to feel. It's a sensual art, here. isn't it? Yeah, it's totally. a sensual yeah, yeah, yeah. art, and yet you're a thinker, yeah. bringing yourself to that thing and overthinking it, overanalyzing whoever, whoever it, said it, and getting getting under your own feet. Think deeply, but feel lightly. Whoever said that? That's, I think you that's, did. That's no, no, no. That's <laughs> that. And that's really good. And, so, and, but yeah. So yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, but my way into it was via a double act because I was interested in the dynamic. Who between, was the double act with? What was the Simon Clayton? You know Simon? Uh, no, I've heard his name. But I don't think I've ever really. Really, I really, really like... I've worked with him a couple of times lately. I really like Simon. Simon could... And, and he's a dear, dear old friend. But he... Um, he's somebody who I think is really, really funny and, and, and could be great. But I worked with Simon for years in a double act. Um, because... Uh, and we didn't write very well together. We're very different kind of acts. So our act was very boisterous and very improvised. Um, but... Uh, and, we probably stayed together a little bit longer than we should have done. Uh, and again, it's just a symbol, a symbol, a symptom of just sort of insecurity and clinging to things and and not feeling uh, confident to jump off. And 
And when that act had to finish, when it clearly wasn't moving anywhere... What was it called? What was the... We were, well, we, in the end, we were Clayton and Gordillo, but in the early days, we were the Crisis Twins. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Echoes of, like, the Dangerous oh, Brothers and the Vicious the Boys. Vicious that was boys. the 80s. That was what everyone was absolutely. called. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the thing that made me want to do stand-up I remember a lot of people at that time, Patrick Marber had been in a double act and he said, when I went solo, he said, that was the best thing I ever did. You should really mm. go solo. And, and it really scared me. And the thing weirdly that, and, and it, that uh, um, impacted on me was, was seeing David Letterman when he was uh, hosting his show in NBC. And I used to go to, I was working in America over the summers quite, quite a lot for a few years. I used to see that show there, the, the NBC show, late night. And I thought it was amazing. And I thought it was absolutely amazing about him. And he was, there was someone who I thought the show was bigger than the personality. I thought the idea of that, not the CBS show, but the original show that they did. And there were elements in the early years of the CBS show. But I thought what he did brilliantly was deflect any... I hated... I hated alpha, laddish comics... Um, even though I loved Sam Kinison and people like that, I mean, the, you know, the, or Jerry Sadowitz, I thought was amazingly funny. But again, I've always felt like I had an emotional access point there. I thought they weren't afraid to be vulnerable. But there was a real strain of, especially in the mid-90s, sort of uber-laddish, joke-for-joke's sake, comedians, and it just felt a bit cold and it felt a bit constructed to me. But also, it just intimidated me. I just didn't feel like I could compete. Mm. Um, and what I loved about Letterman was that he could exist in this largely improvised format with things falling apart around him every night and he would honestly react to it and you would watch all sorts of tensions play out in him and then you also knew that he would be dreadfully hard on himself when he came off stage and really felt that he fucked up everybody else's hard work which appealed to me massively at the time yes. uh, but but I really like the fact that he was a human being in the most mechanical fake environment of show business and 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 his show was in its day was a was a really good attack on that stuff was a really playful and quite honest attack on it then he went to cbs and he had a couple of years on that but something changed and then and then you know he relaxed and got happy with himself and you know times move on (laughs) you know (laughs) is that a way of saying angry well he's his craft is amazing you know and he's still capable of doing the way he would handle, say, just as a political, this is a politician, the way he handled the revelations about his affairs and all the rest of it and the way that he chose to bring that out on the show. I don't watch the show, I haven't watched it for years, but you see things like that on YouTube. And you go, wow, he's, you know, he's a real master of communication and politically very astute, it turns out, to have handled mm. the, the, those revelations in that way. But you got a sense that, you know, I, what... The, you know, the, thing, the great thing about Letterman in his early days was that he didn't plaster on a big shit-eating grin and make out like everything was fine. And, mm. and you know, he, he there were all sorts of... It just felt real. It just felt scratchy. He, when he was enjoying it, he was genuinely enjoying it. When he wasn't, he wasn't, and he didn't hide it. And that's why I loved Howard Stern at that time. I thought the Howard Stern show, I thought he had the most... I mean, it was four hours on the radio every day, but it was the most sophisticated act because it's so full, it's a full human being performing, um, but the level of revelation and, and, and uh, exposure and thought and feeling, this, the real complexity of Howard, I mean, he's still very good, but in, again, in his 
absolute glory days. Um, brilliant, brilliant act. So when you, when you, so I liked all of that. Yeah. Okay. So I like. So I was always into the idea that the act and the person is separate from the act of telling jokes. That it's not about going in there and going, blah, 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 which I can't do. Mm. I can do that if I'm in a run of something when mm-hmm. I've convinced the audience that I'm really in something. Then I can knock jokes down because there's an emotional drive running through it. But apart from that, I know I like to build it up and I like it to be shared and not about coming on and strutting and all the rest of it. Again, man, this is a long answer. That appealed to me when I was more neurotic and less confident. Yes. Now I'm more confident... Um, I don't feel that, you know, I, I actually take, I'm quite high status when I take the stage and I quite enjoy being high status to the venue or to the, what's happening or... Has that changed with age as well? Is that, is that Probably, part yeah. of it? Yeah, you just get more confident the older you get. And also the things I did a gig to a bunch of 25-year-olds last night. I'm 37 and I just felt like the <coughs> daddy. It was really? ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I just felt like, God, you kids... Do you right. know what I mean? I felt I kind of I felt like I've I've gone through that moment of going, oh, I'm a bit older than these guys. They're cool, and you know, like a, you, if you do if you do right. student, no, exactly, exactly. You're old enough, and you go, oh no, actually, they're I'm, I should be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good feeling. <laughs> so um, yeah, go on. Right. <laughs> so your um your last thing on this, and then we will move on to directing, but. So when you first started as a solo, what was yeah. your first stuff separate to the double act? My first stuff... Had you stuff, been writing it in the background? No, no, no. But you, my my, my first stuff, act? in a way, <clears throat> I was an easier proposition in the late 90s than I am now because my act was really based on being a cartoon of the, non, the, not, the not lad. So my act was all about my sort of middle-class ineffectualness. I, I, what happened when I went into a builder's merchant... Uh, and, yes. and couldn't quite function. Now there is there are truths in that, um, but you know, it's a very narrow vein. And yes. and even though it, it actually got me quite big rewards within a short period of time, certainly relative to what you I like had the been, first person to do that. I don't know, that's I, very common. I don't, now, yeah, isn't it? I, don't that, I, I don't know if I was the first, but I was certainly I must have been amongst that wave of, of, of people. I, I think Simon Evans started about the same time, and I think Will Smith was around that time. Um, but what became very clear after about three or four years of that was that um, there were loads of other thoughts and feelings that I was having or things that I found funny that were more transgressive or stranger or that took a little bit longer to set up. And it was difficult for me to accommodate that in the persona, in the voice of the character that I was playing. Um, and so I froze up a bit as a writer. And, and it was... Again, partly because, you know, that whole journey was really just being driven by ego and fear rather than trying to work out, you know, because, you know, because the, the, the fearful mind, the ego-driven mind kind of goes, well, not the ego-driven mind, the fearful mind, in my case, would go, once you have something that's working, you go, oh, it's working, it's working, I'll feed that. And it's desperate. And, 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 and so... One of the challenges, and it's the same challenge that I've faced with it 10 years later in that show that I've gone on about so much today. You know, the audience, and actually, if I'm really honest myself, I'm much more comfortable. We're we're all much more comfortable with me when I'm just stood on stage (laughs) being a nice, normal, rational person at first who may lose their mind, but does that. But, you know, uh, for whatever reason, that... And... 
I didn't know how to reconcile, and even 10 years later didn't know how to get into much darker or more confusing stuff. I didn't know how to contextualise that stuff yes. within the bounds of my character. I don't... I'm not worried about that anymore. Now I kind of go, oh, it's funny, brilliant. I'm sure I can find a way of johnning that up. And, and, and weirdly, I find that I'm much more like the sort of... I suppose it's that thing... It, it, people seem to associate with me with being a professorial, liberal, English teacher-type character, and that seems to be... For whatever reason, that seems to be what the audience often says about me, and that's... Whatever energy I put out, that's what I'm certainly comfortable as a performer. So th that is just what it is. I don't know what to do about that. I really wish I could be... Well, <laughs> any number of people. <laughs> well, who? What? What top three things? What top three other people would you like to be? Not, not. I don't mean their careers, but like what kind of attack, or you know, people who aren't. There's something the really. There's something really wonderful. I think about um, people like Pryor or I mean the Americans mostly, or Louis C.K. or Bill Burr. And what's very good about those people. Um, is that it just feels like it's really full-blooded and it really feels like the emotions are just coming out really naturally and some of it's transgressive uh, and some of it... But it's all intelligent, human, vulnerable. It analyses itself. It acknowledges its own deficiencies. It, it, it feels like you're being spoken to by adults. Adults who like playing and being kids at times, but they're still adults. And I identify with that. And as I'm able as a, just a human to become more, you know, I'm just able to own my maturity and maleness and adultness and a bit more, then it becomes easier just to be that with the audience. So there we go. That's all we've got time for for part one. Uh, in part two, we're going to go into detail on John's directing process and the principles of directing. So it almost becomes, if this is the comedian's comedian, it almost becomes the director's director next week because he is going to share with us some... I mean, I don't know quite what I was expecting, sort of like um, like the director's equivalent of, you know, wrap your mic cable around your hand and open with your second strongest bit, stuff like that. I don't know quite what I was expecting, but what we got was absolutely just just the, the, the kind of... The bones of it, I suppose. What we got was was just a, a typically. <laughs> I was going to invent the word Gordillian, Gordillian, um, a, a very John Gordillo way of looking at the art of directing and the art of helping someone too. And I've said this in previous shows. The skill of a director, I've always thought, is helping someone create the piece of work that they want to make, not the piece of work that the director wants them to make. So we're going to we're going to go into a lot of detail on that, talk about some of the other people that John's worked with, and uh, also get into film, because he's, he's working on a film at the moment, so we're going to be explaining, uh, we're going to be exploring that uh, a little more as well. So there's also some, some extra stuff on stand-up coming up, so look forward to that next week. Uh, tweet me at ComComPod, and if you would like to sing to the rafters about the upcoming Soho Theatre shows, Go on the SohoTheatre.com website, find out about those shows if you're anywhere in or near London or can be. And I promise you, uh, I will tell the Twitter feed and the Comedians Comedian Facebook group first. Uh, I will give you first dibs by at least 12 hours so that you can uh, jump on and sell out those shows as soon as we know who that first guest is going to be. So keep them peeled, stay alert. I'm sorry I didn't manage to be able to bring you the, the, the first name today. But um, the second I know it, the second those closest to me, you guys will find out too. That's all from me. I've been Stu Goldsmith. I'll speak to you next week. Mm -hmm.